Welcome to the Proper Lookout Podcast, published by the Statutory Insurance Group of McCabe Kerwood. In this series, our CTP experts will discuss a range of topics, sharing their thoughts on an industry trend or an intriguing legal issue, explaining the intricacies of an important case, and hopefully imparting some of the knowledge that they have gained. Well, hello, listeners. This is Peter Hunt, briefly in the Proper Lookout podcast. I have two guests with me today. First of you, there's Renee Reddy. Hi, listeners. And a very special guest, Marco Nesbeth of Council. Hi, Marco. Hello. Hello. I hope you're all well. Yep. <laughs> yes. good. It's a great day today. <laughs> we can actually see haze outside because it's uh, bushfire season. In any event, um, we're here today to talk about a recent district court matter we ran, which uh, came to a useful conclusion. It was actually my matter to begin with, but I was jammed for the first day of the hearing, so I had the bright idea of asking Renee to help me. And I suggested to Renee that it was a two-day hearing, and she was very excited to assist. The matter ended up going for six days. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bit of a hospital pass. But I was very wise to pass... advertising. That's what I say. <laughs> but I was very wise to pass the ball to Renee because we got a great result. And in that tradition, I'm going to leave Renee and Marco to discuss the case, and I'm going to take no further part in this episode of the podcast series. Thank you, Peter. Well, listeners, Peter's just left the room, and Marco and I are here to take you through what was quite an interesting and exciting district court hearing. I must say, as Peter said, uh, when I was first approached to look after this matter, I was quite excited, a two-day hearing in the D.C. Sure, no worries. Mind you, being six days, being rather long, it was a very entertaining six days, wouldn't you say, hey, Marco? Yes, it certainly was. <laughs> well, listeners, I'm just going to take you through a little bit of background about this matter, this matter proceeded to a CARS assessment where the CARS assessor awarded a nominal amount of $40,000 with a 15% allowance for contributory negligence. Therefore, the total damages were just a little over $30,000. The plaintiff then rejected the CARS assessment and the matter proceeded to a district court hearing. Yes, uh, when it got to the district court, there was a bit of a preliminary issue, and that related to Section 111 of the Motor Accident Compensations Act now. Which we know happens quite a lot in um, district court hearings. It does, and also in the CARS context. The issue here was that new evidence was being sought to be adduced by the plaintiff, going to the question of economic loss. Now, at that point in time, there was some argument as to whether the matter should have been referred back to CARS or not. The important takeaway in relation to that aspect, though, was that there was no point being taken by the defendant, and it had to really be established that the new information would have been capable of affecting the CARS assessor's decision at the time. This is often a point lost, I I think, on passes when dealing with Section 111. But in any event, the, the matter proceeded before the trial judge. We went into the hearing knowing that the CARS assessment may be indicative of what a judge might award, but aware that the CARS assessor's decision is ultimately not relevant, except with regard to cost penalties. I'll take you through some facts of the case, listeners. This was a 2015 motor vehicle accident, and the plaintiff was 36 years old at the date of accident. The insurer admitted liability. However, contributory negligence was hotly contested. 
The facts which were not controversial in this case were that the plaintiff at an earlier point in time was traveling on the M1 motorway and was involved in an earlier incident where he says his vehicle was sideswiped by another, which resulted in both vehicles, his and the other vehicle concerned, parking at the left side of the road in the emergency lane. At some point in time after that, the plaintiff, after having gotten out of his vehicle, was struck by the defendant's vehicle, which was traveling in lane one, which is closest to the emergency lane, causing injury. Listeners, now moving on to the plaintiff's version of events. The plaintiff alleged that he had already exited his vehicle and was standing in the middle between his vehicle and the, let's call it the third vehicle, which he had had the earlier incident with. What makes it unbelievable is that the plaintiff alleged that the defendant then swerved from her lane of travel and collided with him, miraculously avoiding collision with two vehicles that were located behind and in front of him. The plaintiff submitted that there was no contributing negligence, or that, if contributing negligence occurred, it should be assessed at 10%, whereas we argued that it should be at 66%. The defendant's account, and this was ultimately accepted by the trial judge, was that she was travelling along lane one and saw two vehicles parked at the side of the road. As she approached, the plaintiff opened the driver's door of his vehicle across lane one, prompting her to adjust her course in order to go around the door. However, the plaintiff on the defendant's account walked beyond the door and into the path of her vehicle. She believed it was the near side wing mirror which collided with the plaintiff causing him to fall. On the defendant's account, at all times prior to the collision, the plaintiff had his back to her. When faced with the two competing accounts, the trial judge ultimately accepted the defendant's version. Thanks, Marco. I know that the listeners were waiting with bated breath to hear what the judge had decided with regards to which version of events she accepted. And as you said, the judge ultimately accepted that the plaintiff's version of events was inherently unbelievable because it was not possible with having regard to the speed of the defendant's vehicle that she would have been able to swerve from her lane and into the emergency lane, collide with the plaintiff and swerve out of the emergency lane back into her lane and leave both parked vehicles untouched. Furthermore, the judge ultimately found in the plaintiff's favour and ordered the insurer to pay just shy of $20,000 after a reduction of 50% for contributory negligence. The judge determined that the plaintiff failed to keep a lookout for oncoming traffic, which contributed just as much to the accident as the defendant's failure to slow down. Well, listeners, that sums up contributory negligence. Let's move on now to damages. Marco, tell us a little bit about that. The most significant aspect of the case on damages related to economic loss, and most of the trial really was taken up on this issue. 
It was complicated by the fact that there was a limited amount of documents relied upon by the plaintiff to prove that he suffered any economic losses or at all the accident. And this was complicated further by the fact that there was inconsistent accounts as to whether he was in fact working or not when the accident occurred. For the most part, the plaintiff relied on bank records showing monies going into and out of his account to make good the proposition that he was receiving income at the time of the accident. There are a number of problems, however, in relation to this. First of all, the plaintiff did not have any tax returns, and it was his position that he simply was not declaring the income in relation to work he said he was doing. And the second aspect was the bank records did not make plain where deposits were coming from. Marco, can you tell us a little bit more about how courts deal with matters where the plaintiff hasn't declared tax? Renee, that's a good question because this issue arises a lot in injury claims. There's different ways the courts tend to deal with it. Now, of course, we all know the case of Husher and Husher, which talks about the need to identify what capacity has been lost by an injured person and what consequences will probably flow from that. Probably the most significant case in this area is Georgianis and Castrati, which is a 1988 case, but it's still relevant because it makes clear that a failure to produce documents leaves the evidence in a state of uncertainty. However, it doesn't necessarily follow that loss-earning claim will fail if a plaintiff can establish that they have suffered a loss. So, Marco... What does this mean for insurers who are defending claims where plaintiffs are attempting to make an economic loss claim? Well, first of all, it puts it squarely back on the plaintiff to clarify any lack of certainty in the circumstances around the income they say that they were drawing where there is no proof in relation to it. Perhaps more importantly is the fact that it goes straight to credit. Now, Matteron Jones tells us that the courts will look or take special care when looking at a claim for economic loss where a plaintiff has admitted or is found to have been drawing an income without declaring it to the ATO. And it raises questions as to the trustworthiness of their evidence, at least in relation to earnings. In relation to the whole credibility issue, We argued, and it was accepted in this case, that this also um, translated into the plaintiff's care claim in circumstances where we urged the trial judge not to accept the level of care the plaintiff said he required as a consequence of accident-related injuries. Not forgetting, Marco, that the judge did not accept the plaintiff's caregiver's evidence. Quite right. So listeners, I know you are waiting to hear what happened with regards to costs, noting that we had such a favourable judgment. Marco, tell us a little bit more. Yes, Renee, the story didn't end there. In this case, there was an offer of compromise going to the question of contributory negligence served by the defendant on the basis of a reduction of 30%. Now, you may recall the trial judge found that a reduction of 50% was appropriate. So that was beaten. 
another aspect that was relevant related to section 1512 small b or the motor accident compensations act listeners if you remember i had originally mentioned at the start of this podcast that we knew that the cars assessor's decision ultimately wasn't relevant except with regards to cost penalties and this played out in our favor marco tell us more that section provides that if a plaintiff does not accept a car's award and later the court awards a sum which does not exceed the damages provided for in the certificate, the plaintiff will be liable for the defendant's costs up to $25,000. So that section was engaged and also the provisions relating to the offer of compromise were also engaged. So in relation to all of that, we then brought an application, a notice of motion in relation to the costs issue, and were successful in obtaining um, costs pursuant to section 1512 small b of the Motor Accident Compensations Act, but also costs on an indemnity basis in relation to the question of contributory negligence um, pursuant to the UCPR. I also wanted to let you guys know that we were successful pursuant to Section 96 of the Civil Procedure Act in having the defendant's costs set off against the damages awarded to the plaintiff. This meant that the plaintiff was prevented from taking any steps to enforce the judgment sum for damages until the defendant's costs issue had been resolved. That's right, Renee. Ultimately, a cost order is worth nothing if it can't be enforced. Listeners, let's talk a little bit about why this case is important. This case importantly helped us apply Boral Bricks versus Cosmides, which discussed the introduction of Section 5R of the Civil Liability Act. As the assessment of contributing negligence requires a comparison of the carelessness of each party, without regard to the fact that a vehicle posed greater potential to cause injury to a pedestrian than for the pedestrian to injure the driver of the vehicle. This is because Section 5R requires members of the community to accept responsibility for their own personal safety. Listeners, you will recall that in our earlier podcast, number 54, we discussed the case of Air vs. Swan, and this was also discussed in a recent case note of ours. As described in the podcast and the case note, this case that Marco and I were involved in further reinforces the demise of the lethal weapon principle when it comes to assessing contributing negligence in claims by vulnerable claimants such as pedestrians, cyclists, or motorcyclists. The onus is now on road users to accept personal responsibility for their own safety required to recognize their vulnerability to harm and take personal responsibility by exercising a reasonable level of caution for the circumstances. A failure to do so will result in a high level of contributory negligence, even though the negligent driver may have been in control of a potentially lethal weapon. It is interesting in this case as well, listeners, that with the defendant freely admitting that she did not slow down, In circumstances where she should have, this still did not hurt our case. Instead, 
it actually added credibility to the remainder of the defendant's version of events. Another interesting point, listeners, is that if this case was being considered in the context of Maya, the plaintiff would not be mostly at fault, as his contributory negligence was assessed at less than 61%. Marco, what would you say are your takeaway points from this case? Thanks, Renee. It's the most important point, really, from my perspective, was really the reminder in relation to the approach taken by judges and triers of fact more generally in relation to economic loss claims where there has been non-declaration of income and non-payment of taxes, because that raises a number of issues in relation to credibility, how that income should be treated. And also, let's not forget, it's important to prove the income in the first place. Because often in those circumstances where we're talking about cash earnings and the like, there is a very finite, if any, paper trail relating to it. That was an issue both at cars and ultimately at trial. And in both cases, the plaintiff failed. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of the Proper Lookout podcast. Marco, thanks so much for visiting Chatswood to record this podcast. Thank you for having me. And listeners, join us next week for another episode of the Proper Lookout podcast. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Proper Lookout podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on anything discussed, please contact Peter Hunt at peter.hunt at mccabecurwood.com.au or visit our website to see McCabe Curwood's full team of specialists.